You're listening to Don't Waste Water. Net zero is not an extra new thing. It's an operating environment. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. They say, oh, I want low carbon, but they never ask for low carbon in the contract. So how do you expect your designers, your contractors deliver low carbon for you? I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm glad to welcome Maria Manidaki as my guest. If you think about it, when it comes to climate change, net zero environment and social outcomes, all these things are fundamental for a society to function in a respectful and organized way. Maria is Net Zero Technical Lead and Principal Water Investment Planning Advisor at Mott McDonald's. I don't see decarbonization and carbon as only one extra thing we need to be considering. Net Zero, hopefully by 2050 globally, will be an operating environment. Mott McDonald is a global engineering, management and development consultancy that places social outcomes at the center of all it does. You know the saying, smoke is a good proxy to determine if there's a fire. Well, it turns out that the same applies to greenhouse gases. Studies demonstrated how carbon emissions are, in fact, a good proxy for resource efficiency. So if you want to optimize your resources and build a sustainable approach, you'd better monitor, control and limit your greenhouse gas emissions. Long story short, down the line, Water UK just equipped itself with a 2030 route map that aims for net zero in the water sector. It's not alone in this endeavor, as 81 utilities in the world, and at the time I'm recording this in May 2022, have taken that pledge, but I'd say it's the most structured approach I've seen so far. Maria will get us through all of that in a minute and explain the role that Mott McDonald plays in Water UK's route map in further working groups such as Pass 2080 and beyond. And if you're like me, you also get to discover a new notion, the concept of a good net zero. For now, let me remind you that this is the third installment of a series of five feature interviews on that podcast that address the water sector's carbon emissions and positioning in the race to net zero. If you happen to attend the Global Water Summit in Madrid, I'll have the pleasure of hosting a session with the same five speakers on stage there. And if you want a complete overview on this series, head over to dww.show slash carbon. Finally, if this is the first time you stumble upon this podcast and you don't want to miss any of these conversations in the future, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available on all platforms, it's 100% free, and you'll notice how it's even better if you share it with your friends or colleagues. I'll let you share it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Good to meet you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Antoine. I'm really looking forward to that discussion. I know I'm saying that quite often on that microphone, but here I have to say 
there's a lot of riddles I think you will be able to answer. Before all of that, you know, I have a tradition on that microphone, which is to open with a postcard. And you're sending me a postcard from Athens. Yeah. So what can you tell me about Athens, which I would ignore <laughs> by now? Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, this morning I'm speaking to you from Athens. So I'm Greek. Uh, I'm based in the UK, working with Mount McDonald. Uh, but I happen to be here this week, combining a little bit of holiday and a couple of days of working uh, before I'm off to Madrid next week uh, for the summit. <laughs> You, you mentioned you, you're working for, for Mott McDonald, if I'm right. I don't want to butcher your job title, but you're a net zero technical lead and principal water investment planning advisor. What does that encompass? What does it mean? Okay, so essentially for people that do not understand what this means, my background, I'm an engineer and I've worked in my early career years as an engineer, a designer and doing some construction of water utility projects and wastewater. So I'm a technical person. I have a technical background. And in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, I've been more on the technical advisory space where I help infrastructure clients plan their capital programs. So that's where the investment planning fits in. So it's about how do you make the right decision going forward for a solution. And the net zero technical lead is because I've been in the decarbonization space for many years now. And in the last few years, I've been focusing in helping our clients of how to align themselves to net zero, really. De decarbonization is really what we will be exploring in a minute. And you say you're in the decarbonization space. And I put that in the fridge because I'd like you to explain a bit what you describe as that space. But right before, you know, when I was doing my, my research, I was looking at Mott McDonald's website. And I've seen that there was a strong purpose on the cover page, which was to say you want to improve society. And I'm wondering if you really walk the talk yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and integrate the social outcomes in everything you do. Absolutely, Don. I mean, uh, social outcomes, if, if you think about it, when it comes to climate change, net zero environment and social outcomes, all these things are fundamental for a society to function in a respectful and organized way. Obviously, social impact and inclusion are increasingly becoming part of our standard vocabulary in the infrastructure and engineering sectors because traditionally, you know, us engineers were seen as this person who is doing some technical calculations for a project and there you go. But I would say in terms of walking the talk that essentially when you plan for anything being in the water, energy, transport, built environment sectors, you need to really understand the impact on the users of these assets that you have and hence understanding how an engineering solution can be in, as inclusive as possible in a community, uh, but also um, having the right diversity in the teams that deliver that project. Now, when it comes to net zero, how the hell does this feel? Does this fit to all this? If you ask me, I don't see decarbonization and carbon as only one extra thing we need to be considering. Net zero, hopefully by 2050 globally, will be an operating environment. So if you think about it, every activity, every sector of our economy globally, hopefully, depending how we follow the Paris Agreement and the challenge, will have to fit into this net zero constraint and operating environment. And that's why I feel those two things are very much interlinked. Actually, talking of net zero and to really go into our deep dive, there was a concept which I found, uh, again, on the website from Mott McDonald, which I had honestly never seen before, which is that you strive to achieve a good net zero. So it's not just net zero, which is just a challenge for many. You're saying on top of that, it needs to be 
a good net zero. So what is a, a good, good net, net zero? zero? Yeah, this is again, this is a very interesting and very challenging question. I mean, if you asked me exactly the same question last year, I would tell you there isn't any definition of net zero because a lot of people use the concepts of carbon neutrality and net zero interchangeably. So essentially, if you think about it, if you don't take into account the latest policies and definitions, Net zero is just a balancing act of saying, oh, I'm going to emit as little as possible and the rest I'm going to offset or sequester it, remove from the atmosphere. So that's the net bit of net zero. And you could achieve that in different ways. For example, a government, and we saw in COP26, many governments said, I'm going to achieve net zero by 2070 or 2050, but there hasn't been any clarity of steps they have to take now to achieve those reductions before they offset. So for me, this is not an, a good net zero because if you take it cumulatively, you might have emitted so many emissions by 2015, suddenly you're down to offsetting everything. When it comes to good net zero, is about following good science according to the uh, Paris Agreement trajectories and say, what can I do to take some steps and reduce as much as possible those emissions and as per the new SPTI definition of net zero, which came out just before COP26, you're essentially looking at reductions over 90% of your baseline by 2050 before you offset the remaining 10. So good and bad, it's always difficult to define, but the important message here is that it's not a simple equation, just carbon neutrality or net zero. So the net effect is zero, is more than that. And we have to do as much as possible to reduce and eliminate and avoid those emissions before we accept there will be a small amount of residual emissions to, to remove from the atmosphere. It also fits with another piece which I found uh, on that same website. I mean, I had a good read on your website about the investment opportunity because I remember I had a discussion on that microphone with uh, Claudia Winkler and Alice Schmidt. And we were discussing how the United Nations had made an estimation of the business opportunity of sustainable development. And they were saying that it's a $12 trillion opportunity worldwide, which it's roughly 10% of the world's net worth. And I never saw that associated to net zero or to carbon initiatives. And you're saying that we can shift the narrative and say, instead of talking of cost benefits, rather talk of, of an investment opportunity. And again, I'm wondering, how do you do that shift? That's another tricky one to clearly define because it's recognizable from many economic studies that have been made around climate change and uh, uh, climate the cost of adaptation in the future and the cost of mitigation, which is the decarbonization. The earlier it happens, the less uh, severe effects we will have on the economy. So if you look at the cost-benefit analysis from a whole life and long-term perspective, then suddenly it makes much more sense to take action now and invest something now because in the future it's going to be more expensive. This is one angle of looking at it. However, when you look at the investment community where they're thinking in more shorter-term investment cycles compared to you know the more longer-term country-level kind of decision-making, there are still some policies out there linked to decarbonization, especially with energy transition, where different governments have uh, uh, made it uh, even more attractive to, to accelerate 
private sector investment action and invest in some of those decarbonization technology, particularly with clean energy. So there are two sides of the coin, really. I really prefer to see this as an investment opportunity because, as I said, net zero is not an extra new thing. It's an operating environment and the action the more action we take early, the less are going to be the consequences and the costs in the future, where and we're going to have more resilient infrastructure or other co-benefits. I'll give you an example if you want. So, you know, everyone is talking about nature-based solutions, for example, in the infrastructure space. Why do we need to consider nature-based solutions or green infrastructure rather than only the traditional gray infrastructure? Because those solutions, if we manage to make them work technically, they provide other co-benefits benefits like uh, resilience, climate resilience benefits, or they, they can prevent some accelerated flooding, surface flooding in the future, or they can provide some amenity value for the local community. So it's all about looking at the different opportunity out there to make sure we include in our investment planning model. So for the ones listening to that, if you're interested in nature-based solutions, uh, I was involved last year in the Innovate for City UN conference. And uh, I have made on that microphone three interviews with uh, James Murray from the, the City Council of, of uh, Glasgow, Silvana Di Sabatino and Mark Barra. So just uh, I'll link them in the notes because you, you're right, it's fully related. It's about replacing grey engineering with green engineering, one-to-one, -one, and then look at the welcome side effects. Exactly. But I won't sidetrack you here. You mentioned policies. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're working for Mott McDonald in the UK. From continental Europe point of view, it's interesting, intriguing, refreshing, and really, yeah, questioning to, to see how the UK leads the charge. Why did they take that role and what's the rational for that? If you think about it, may, may have been involved in different parts of the world uh, when it comes to decarbonization infrastructure, not only in the UK, but one of the things uh, that I remember I was involved back in 2013, I'm not sure if you are aware of the Infrastructure Carbon Review. It was essentially um, a document, a publication that Mount MacDonald authored. I was part of the authoring team. It was published by the Treasury and back then uh, it said, essentially, it was targeted at CEO level people saying that carbon or greenhouse gases should be looked as a good proxy for resource efficiency. And if that's the case, then it makes absolute business sense to come up with the right innovations and innovative solutions rather than just uh, waiting for some main policy drivers, etc. Because back then it was all about the energy transition, which is the most important, obviously, aspect of decarbonization. But then if you look at other sectors like transport, which has huge amount of emissions, especially when it comes to building big assets and using the cars and the roads, etc. You know, how can we look at carbon as a proxy for resource efficiency to accelerate the agenda going forward? And the reason I'm mentioning this example is because this required a significant amount of leadership. And those leaders, those CEO level uh, people, um, the ones who believed in that concept and taking a proactive step forward, managed to create some sort of a ripple effect going forward of what is the right thing to do as a business, as a private sector business. Because don't forget in the UK, infrastructure is privately owned ma mainly with very good regulation models that, of course, uh, protect the customers and the environment. But I feel there is something in the UK where I, I saw 
quite a lot of action being taken, accelerated action. Now, it doesn't mean that the UK is uh, the best model uh, globally. Uh, if you ask me what is the best model, I would say there isn't a single best model. But what I've seen from my experience on the ground working with the different value chain members in infrastructure from government, regulators, asset owners, uh, product material suppliers, designers, I saw that they recognize those softer aspects of decarbonization, which is about leadership, collaboration, you know, and Past 2080 was a piece of work that came out of that. The, the market structure is an enabler. If I keep my continental Europe hat, I would say if it's a resource efficiency topic, being an island maybe plays a role, but you're saying it's also a matter of leadership and if you have the, the right leadership in place, yeah. which is then creating that move. For me, yeah, the leadership is the most important thing because, yeah, I'm an engineer and, of course, my bias would be, oh, as long as you have the right technical solution, you can achieve that. But it's not about that. It's all those software enablers at an organizational level. How do you create a culture of challenge? Because net zero and climate resilience require really fresh thinking so that we're talking about a change management program at massive scale. Yeah, not only in our educational system, but all the organizations across the value chain that work in this space. And how do you make a start on that? Well, by having the right leadership at all levels in the organization and then obviously up to government regulators, finance community, etc. Yeah, so leadership, I would say, although I'm an engineer and I totally value science and uh, technical solutions, they're hugely important to become part of the solution. Sometimes when things fall apart are because we don't have the right leadership or governance to accelerate implementation of these things. <laughs> so far, we were discussing about 2050, which is the word's target yeah. towards net zero, but you're also a member and, and, and one of the authors of the Net Zero 2030 roadmap, which is published in the UK. I'm wondering, why do you want to be 20 years faster than anyone? <laughs> yeah, well, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting story. I mean, uh, yeah, so I was involved in supporting Water UK with uh, the sector's Net Zero roadmap for 2030. And how this started was that water companies in England, so in the UK, we have um, English water companies, we have Welsh water, we have Scottish water, Northern Ireland water. Okay, it's a little bit uh, different, but water companies in England, uh, they published a public interest commitment back in 2019 that they will be net zero and net zero industry by 2030. And this was part and this was for their operational emissions yeah the emissions that can directly control and this was part of another number of commitments to the public to the customers basically their users of water as part of their social license to operate and this was a very difficult and ambitious challenge but this was a result of leadership and when we went uh, to start working with all the water companies and understand okay how practically can we uh, make a plan that is flexible enough, but uh, there is an alignment to net zero operational emissions by 2030, then you could immediately see quite a lot of challenges because not all of the emissions water companies have are directly controlled by them. You know, you have the pace of decarbonization of the grid, you have other factors, how the costs of uh, electrified vehicles or, or the hydrogen market is moving. At the time, I remember I found it, oh, this is very challenging. But then I realized moving on from that was 2019, 2020, and going back last year at COP26, I realized that the beauty and the most important value of this plan and the bold announcement the sector did for 2030 was that this essentially accelerated the need for action. 
Because if you suddenly say, I'm going to do things on 2050 and I'm going to include all those emissions and there is a vague statement somewhere out there, the chances are you're not going to do a lot of actions now if you think your target is 2050. Whereas if you have 2030, at least your operational emissions are at 2030, you have to really push the boundaries to do something and then include your other scope three emissions, etc. That's very interesting. So thanks for going into the details. I mean, that's where we understand the, the, the full implications. In your answer, you, if I unpack it a bit, it's not just water. I mean, you named hydrogen, you named electrical vehicle. So I think it's a bit broader than that. How do you bridge all these aspects beyond just water? This is why I wanted to revisit the point I mentioned earlier, that when it comes to decarbonization, it's a systemic problem. It's a systems level challenge. So you cannot just say, oh, I'm a water company, so I'm only going to look at my emissions associated, let's say, with my direct uh, process emissions like nitrous oxide or methane from my wastewater operations, you know, because these are direct emissions that I have. I'm consuming electricity, I'm consuming heat, you know, I'm consuming fossil fuels for my standby generation, for my fleet, yeah, my my sludge tankers, etc. So all these things belong in inverted commas into other infrastructure sectors and require decarbonization trajectories and action by other sectors. But the whole point of bringing it all together is to have the right evidence base to have proper discussions and with very high-level people in regulation and government in other sectors, other asset owners, to see how we can collectively, in the system level, address this challenge as quickly as possible. It's zooming out before we zoom in. Absolutely. If I, if I try to... Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the same. It's the same thing if you are like you know, like you and me as uh, uh, citizens, basically in any country in Europe, in, in in any country actually, we're saying, okay, so what is the, the what are the things that I can do, and what are the things that I can talk to other people that I can influence, not only for decarbonization but other things as well, and suddenly you realize that on your own you cannot do a lot of things. So that means you need to create the right networks, the right communities, the right platforms to have a collaboration in this space. Because whoever says net zero is an easy task and uh, I'm going to do it on my own, being an organization, a government or whatever that may be, I don't find this very credible. So when you mentioned the, the, these platforms, um, for instance, does that mean that you have like working groups at Water UK or yep. in the net zero route map? How do you come together with the rest of the value chain? Absolutely. So Water UK, they've got many working groups for specific topics. There is one, of course, on carbon, one on resilience, one on regulation and many others. You have the UK Water Industry Research Body where all water companies um, sit together and do some research projects, some linked to the carbon there are platforms with a supply chain from British Water. There are international peer-to-peer uh, -peer discussions. Like we've been, and that's the beauty in Mont McDonald because we operate at a global scale. We have also managed to facilitate quite a lot of these dialogues with our clients in the UK, with other clients in New Zealand, in Singapore, you know, in other parts of the world. And uh, yeah, the whole point is to share the learning and see what has worked, what hasn't worked for each other. And yeah, it's a collaborative process, basically. So once you have these learnings and you put them together, I guess one right way to, to enforce them is to turn them into policies. It's to turn them into clear actions, absolutely. So if you look at the roadmap, the net zero roadmap, obviously it's for a refresh uh, because things have moved on 
quite quickly <laughs> since it was first published. I remember it was the first sector roadmap on its kind. We were basically creating new ground. But yeah, so when it and what it did do, it, it tried to put all the little pieces of the puzzle together from a technology policy, other enabling environments, supply chain, costs, other things into a number of pathways to net zero. And what are the key actions that are under the direct control of the water companies that are more in an influence role for the supply chain or regulation or the government? That was the the result. And they used that as a blueprint, the water companies, to create their own detailed action plans. Yourself, you're also involved into the writing of frameworks and uh, and standards, right? Because you've been contributing to the PAS 2080 update. Yep. So... Really, <laughs> you noticed the way I said it, that I was reading my notes here. <laughs> what is PAS 2080? Okay, PAS as we call it, PAS 2080. So PAS is essentially a publicly available specification, which is a step before the document becomes a standard. You know, like we have the European British standards, ISOs, yeah. And the reason for being a PAS is called the PAS is that is a little bit quicker to be published and it ha- it can be revised after a few years more easily rather than having when you publish an ISO for example or a British standard or a European standard it can take years to publish and then it's a little bit locked until the next revision which could be many years down the line so past 2080 we first uh, co-authored it in 2016 it was the first specification or standard if you like to uh, to be a management standard for carbon whole life carbon and in infrastructure and so it wasn't a technical standard you know like you have concrete steel standards etc so it was all about saying what is a common language and a framework for different value chain members in infrastructure to manage whole life carbon when they're delivering infrastructure projects and programs of work? So, you know, so what do you do? You need to set targets. You need to have the right leadership and governance models. You need to quantify carbon. You need to integrate into decision-making to make sure the lowest carbon solution is there. And this year, we are updating this specification and it's quite a major update because we this uh, year the PAS recognizes the wider built environment is not only infrastructure and the importance of net zero at the system level, which is requires more and more collaboration across the value chain and the different sectors, basically. So it's a management specification. That was the zoomed out view. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to look at my belly as the water industry and zoom in yeah. and zoom back in. Yeah. You mentioned that you have to look not only at your own emissions, but nevertheless, in those own emissions, they are parts of our processes, which are pretty intensive in terms of emissions. Mm-hmm. And usually we we talk about the pumps on the network, which are energy intensive. We talk about the aeration in in the wastewater treatment, which is pretty energy intensive. But you highlighted another area, I mean, on top of those, which is the emissions of the processes. And you hinted a bit uh, with the NOx emissions you you just alluded to. Mm -hmm. But what are those emissions and could you quantify them? Yeah, of course. So... The process emissions, when we refer to process emissions, we're talking about mainly nitrous oxide and methane 
from wastewater treatment and sludge treatment. When it comes to methane, I will start with the easy, relatively easier methane. The reason for the easy bit is because we understand them better, those emissions, is we know that wastewater utilities have done quite a lot of uh, things to capture the methane and uh, use it as a resource yeah, for biogas or biomethane that has a better carbon balance, essentially a renewable fuel. Okay, but there are still leaks in the pipework, in tanks where you have sludge. So how do you capture those? When it comes to nitrous oxides, these are emissions from uh, the wastewater treatment process. You mentioned uh, secondary treatment, the aeration. And these are emissions where the science is not very clear because they're very location specific. For example, they are affected by seasonality, by temperature, where the treatment plant is, which country in the world. There is some guidance on the emissions factor, if you like, from uh, the IPCC, where the UK water industry has been uh, using. And now they have started monitoring in specific plants in the UK, learning from Europe, especially Denmark and other parts of the world. We're doing in New Zealand, Singapore as well. They're starting to look at those things to see how we monitor in a plant with sensors to understand what those emissions are, where they are, how they vary based on the load, the season, the location. And when you say, when you ask me how big those are, early sight and early results could mean that those emissions by 2030 could be for a water company 60% of their whole emissions as their electricity grid is decarbonizing and they adopt other renewable energy. So this could be more than half of their emissions in 2030 and going forward. So these are this is one of the biggest challenges when it comes to direct emissions for a wastewater utility. So what do we do about it? There are many things you can do about it. I mean, obviously, you need to measure to understand exactly how big they are. But if we put that on the side, there are things, very innovative things that also we're involved in this space and along with others, an easy thing to do. So when it comes to monitoring and modeling, understanding the scale, magnitude, location, there are digital tools and digital models that uh, are being developed to understand how you can do it in a more digital way rather than spending money to put sensors in the, the entire country. When it comes to avoiding or reducing or capturing those, the easiest thing one could say is that, okay, so you just cover all the wastewater tanks in a country and just capture those noxes and do something with them. Uh, but then this would be... This would cost billions and billions. Imagine if you did it for the entire country. Yeah, it wouldn't be the most cost-effective thing for the consumer. I would say their bill, their water bill. But there are solutions you can do to optimize operationally, optimize uh, the plant by looking at the dissolved oxygen, looking at the energy consumption, looking at the impact on process emissions. There are some small tweaks you can make but the reductions are smaller. There are technology swaps. You can switch to anaerobic wastewater treatment or can you look at other technologies in your secondary treatment process, et cetera, et cetera. So there are ways. Obviously, we haven't found a way yet to reduce them by 100%. So we recognize this is a big challenge and a massive innovation challenge for the sector. And the supply chain will be key to helping water utilities uh, find the right solution going forward. So that means that the new realm of net zero and the good net zero might be the end of the road for our 
good old workhorse of the, the water industry or the wastewater <laughs> treatment industry, which is deactivated sludge. Absolutely. And you know what? And it's very interesting because uh, all the process engineers I've met and worked with, being from Mod McDonald or other partners and companies, you know, because it's all about working together and uh, water utilities. It's about, oh, wow, we need to really rethink how we design and operate our plants because traditionally it was all about compliance and minimum energy consumption. Now we need to add another layer, which are the NOxes, absolutely. And it's very interesting and technically challenging. So that's why we really need to look at this problem in a more systemic way and make the most of any digital tools, sound science we have, and solve this problem together. We've been exploring so far the framework, the way you go to the problem from a country perspective, from standards perspective, how you work with the value chain. But that's not everything you do. You're also involved with the practical side of the story <laughs> yeah. and you're helping utilities actually decarbonizing. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, did you identify so far best practices that you can share and pitfalls that everybody shall avoid? Yeah, I mean, there are so many practices because I, I apologies if I'm repeating myself, but yeah, when it comes to practices for decarbonization, it's not only just to tell you, oh, just look at this technology to produce hydrogen or uh, biomethane, you know, biogas, biomethane or renewable energy or use this treatment process because it's better for process emissions. It's not only about that. There are very good practices where water utilities have tried to understand the carbon footprint of their operations and how they use this data to integrate this into the investment planning approach to meet the targets. This, for me, are some very good practices that we have seen in the UK from water companies where, in a more systematically way, following the principles of past 2080, you say, this is my target for emissions, net zero operational emissions. Some water companies also have some very challenging scope three targets, the capital carbon, you know, the construction carbon uh, associated with the assets. Then having the tools in place to quantify this as part of the delivery process where they're refurbishing infrastructure or planning for new infrastructure? And how do you make the right decisions when you choose between option A and B from a carbon perspective? This, I know it sounds very basic, but it can be very hard to apply across the board in an organization on top of the technical and technology solutions. I wouldn't say it sounds basic. <laughs> I would say it's it's really interesting because what you're highlighting is that the first good practice is a leadership and, and managing practice. That's it. That's it. And it, it can be tempting. You know, we are an industry full of engineers. You're an engineer. I'm an engineer. We could be jumping to conclusions that say, hey, <laughs> let's look at the technical exactly. solution. And and it's the opposite. Let's zoom out. And so that's really... Exactly. Exactly. That's why, I, you know, I'm an engineer. I would love to talk to you for the next hour or two about renewables, about desalination, about alternative fuels, about all these technical things, demand-side solutions, electrified vehicles. But I'm trying to resist doing that because I feel the culture, the leadership, the decision-making are key. And if you were to ask me what you have seen as the biggest challenge to all this, I would say, is how do you integrate this consistently across your entire organization and your supply chain through procurement? Because procurement is going to be one of the most important enablers on this going forward. And I feel as an industry, not only in the UK, but across the world, we are lacking innovative 
procurement models that incentivize the right behaviors for decarbonization. So you mean procurement going beyond cost reduction and looking a bit broader at what's the, the challenge Absolutely. we have on the table? Absolutely. And I've seen some great, great pockets of excellence, uh, like in New Zealand with water care. I've seen in the UK with Anglian Water, with other water companies, some good procurement mechanisms where they have a pain gain uh, share model, if you like. And carbon is part of the decision-making process for procurement and selection, but not only the water sector, I've seen it elsewhere. But if you ask me in terms of maturity of infrastructure, when it comes to decarbonization, uh, good practices, I would say procurement would be one that uh, we need to really improve. And the past 28 update, we're touching on procurement as well. If I take my, my devil's advocate hat for, for, for a second, I have a hard time to imagine a procurement department like, <laughs> like, like looking at cost, which is one of their criterion, maybe delivery time, which is one of their criterion, and carbon, like exactly on the same yeah, level, but those are the three criterion. I, I really... <laughs> doubt that's the case today. Of course. And this is why it's so important to have the right procurement model. First of all, you know, when a lot of water utilities I've seen, and not only in water, transport owners as well, when they say, oh, I want low carbon, but they never ask for low carbon in the contract. So how do you expect your designers, your contractors deliver low carbon for you? Yeah. So you have to start with the basics, even before you go into complex commercial models where you put a weighting in carbon versus cost versus financial penalties or rewards. Before you even do that, you need to ask, you need to fully articulate your challenge as an organization and ask for low carbon that you have to meet this target. You need to get on board your supply chain and select your partners that will help you with this challenge. That's the starting point. And what you're describing, Antoine, you're absolutely right, but this is a level down when it comes to, okay, what is more important, capital cost, whole life cost, capital carbon, operational carbon, you know, other factors. But this is about developing a framework to see how to leave it as open and flexible as possible, the procurement model, so it incentivizes the right behaviors. For me, this is the thing that we need to move towards to rather than the majority of transactional procurement relationships we currently have in the supply chain and infrastructure. That means that this leadership and management and way you, you look at it is both a best practice and a pitfall. Absolutely. Not done right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's it. And again, I know you would love and maybe the audience would love me to go through more details on technologies and cool things on decarbonization. I would love to do that, but I really feel I want to take a step back and uh, put that as one of the biggest challenge, basically. The culture and this the procurement yeah. framework, is it part of PAS 2080? Yeah, so PAS 2080 this time because uh, we recognized we did an industry review. So I also sit in the Green Construction Board in the UK, which is essentially a government and industry body for uh, uh, construction and the built environment and decarbonization, basically. And one of the things we did an industry review of progress of decarbonization in UK infrastructure. And one of the things we, we found out is that procurement had the lowest maturity. So past 2080, this time around this year, we are including a new clause on procurement that provides more guidance and in the guidance document for people to start thinking, okay, how can I start with integrating carbon into procurement? If I look at all the pillars we've explored so far, there's a last one, which we didn't cover so far, which is education. Yeah. And actually there as well, you're lecturing at the Cranfield University yeah. Education is something which is somehow a bridge between multiple members of the panel we will have at the Global Water Summit. 
So it's something which sounds like being a recurring theme. How would you rank it in terms of uh, importance across all those factors? First of all, uh, my heart has always been uh, close to young people and education. For me, education, not only decarbonization, but in everything, is the most important pillar for a well-functioning society, yeah, if you think about it, uh, from kids at school to university to throughout life. So, yeah, I have been very fortunate to be a visiting lecturer every year in Cranfield, and also I've done other lectures in other universities and work collaborating with students. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is because I remember when I was a student in university where decarbonization didn't even exist as a word or maybe sustainable development was the closest thing to climate change. Back then it was called global warming. Yeah, if you remember. Anyway, I'm very passionate about education and young people. And what I've tried to do when I work with these people and, you know, doing a lecture or a talk or whatever that may be, is to show what their role could be in solving this challenge in a practical sense, because you know how in universities we have some amazing academic institutions globally, and uh, sometimes we go into too much theory. Of course, you need to understand the basics, you need to understand uh, mathematics, physics, these are absolutely important things in the science, and I always pay a huge importance in science. But then, what does this mean in practice in society? How could a water engineer or a chemical engineer or another civil engineer? what would be the role they could play to solving those challenges with other engineers and non-engineer social scientists, you know, other scientists and uh, ecologists, etc. And this is one of the most important things that I feel passionate about. And I will keep doing that because I feel we need to give people a little bit of an inspiration of what does this mean based on the modules they're learning in university in the real world. So that's a huge brick in the wall with the university But you mentioned also the education throughout life. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, if we want to achieve our targets by 2030, we will need to have the actual workforce today out there in all the companies to be aligned and educated to everything you just explained us for the past 40 minutes. So I'm wondering, how do we reach those people? Yeah, Antoine, so one of the things in the front of my mind, uh, I would say, uh, in general about climate change, also decarbonization, but resilience as well, is the skills gap. Uh, we need to make sure sh- we need to understand and we need to make sure we acknowledge that we will need new and different and evolved skills for everyone, all of us, including me, including you, including everyone in the summit that will be there. And to do that, we need to recognize that every day is a school day. Yeah, this uh, landscape is changing so fast. I mean, I can see, as I mentioned earlier, when we were authoring the Water UK 2030 plan back in 2020, things have changed dramatically in a couple of years' time. And we need to make sure we keep on top of agendas. We need to make sure we keep talking to each other, being competitors, being partners, being universities, being utilities, government. We need to make sure we embark jointly in solid research projects in order to make sure that by 2030, we will have a different way of looking at the industry and infrastructure. How do we, for example, now we tend to think of projects at projects and silos. Oh, I have to deliver this wastewater treatment plant or this pipeline or this reservoir, you know, as an example in the water sector, this hydrogen facility. But by 2030, I would like to think that when 
we're thinking about outcomes. So I need to provide water to the users or I need to protect the environment with a constraint of net zero, of resilience, of other things. How can I solve this problem more holistically with digital tools, with circular economy principles, with system level um, challenges and dialogue? So when it comes to education, we really need to make sure we keep talking to each other and create together the next new thing so we're all upskilled together, our clients, ourselves, our partners, our competitors. I'm sorry for the long-winded response, but uh, for me, this is one of the things that is in the front of my mind, uh, the skills shortage in this space at the moment. You mentioned 2030 as the obvious horizon at which we have to, to check if we achieved it. What's your North Star metric or your key performance indicator which will tell you It is a success by 2030. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, that's a very good question, actually. One of the things that we're trying to do in the water sector in the UK, especially the water companies in England, is that we need to recognize the 2050 national target because in the UK, as um, in other parts of the world, they have a 2050 Paris aligned target for net zero. 2030 target, as I said, is for operational emissions. So we need to make sure that we achieve the level of reductions by 2030, then how many more reductions we can achieve by 2050 by including our scope three emissions and what would the residuals look like? So the North Star are some metrics that the water sector has been developing, yeah, and each company have their own, obviously because they have their own action plans, but the North Star is never lose sight of the 2050 by trying to reach 2030. But 2030 is a great milestone to accelerate the action. Yeah. And there are metrics in place to meet those. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating exploration on the surface on all those topics. You went a bit deeper in, into it, but I feel like we can have like 10 hours and still have I know. a lot of matter to share. So I'd say it's a part one and we'll have to make a sequel at some point to go a bit deeper in all those topics. Absolutely. But it's been a fascinating exploration. Mary, I propose you to round that off and to go to our rapid fire question section. Okay, go for it. It's time for the rapid fire questions. <laughs> so in that last part, I tried to keep the questions short and your duty is to, to keep the answers short and I'm never cutting the microphone, don't worry. <laughs> okay, go for it. What is the most exciting project you've been working on and why? Oh, that's a difficult one, Antoine. I don't like singling out my clients and partners. So, okay, if there was one, I would I would try to group a, a few into one category, which is in the UK, that story and the line from the Infrastructure Carbon Review in 2013 that led to the development of Past 2080, that also influenced the, the collaborative behaviors for inspiring uh, some water companies to take lead and have the sector level roadmap for 2030. And the reason why this line of projects, if you like, is important is because it showed me as an engineer that it's not only about the technical solutions, it's about having the great science and engineering to have a data-driven plan, but that leadership and collaboration are key. Can you name one thing that you've learned the hard way? Oh, I would think the hard way, yeah, it's just to make sure we adopt a flexible approach. Again, in net zero and decarbonization and climate change things, nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. So... I have learned the hard way of trying to stick to a certain trajectory and things that will happen in five years' time or 10 years' time or 20 years' time. 
but it wasn't really right. So it's the importance of having flexible pathways to whatever you're doing. Is there something that you're doing today in your job that you will not be doing in 10 years? Well, if you had asked me, if I was back in my engineering designer days, I would tell you, oh, digital is booming. So maybe the job when I'm designing something, uh, an artificial intelligence kind of algorithm will do it for me. But as a technical advisor, I think I will be empowered by having lots of predictive analytics and data from machine learning to help me make better decisions rather than spending a lot of time analyzing and forecasting <laughs> into the unknown, I think. Yeah. What is the trend to watch out for in the water sector? I think, yeah, building on what we discussed previously, I think it's a combination of digital, uh, circular economy and synergies at the system level and uh, co-benefits with society and nature. It's not only just looking at engineering as an asset, uh, you know, a concrete tank or a technology. Yeah. If you were a world political leader, what would be your first action to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? Oh, wow. <laughs> Right. Okay. I would say this one, it's a tricky one. I would say maybe two or three things. One is about people in education. You mentioned education. I would make sure that all these issues and problems and challenges are embedded fully from in the educational system from the age of four. <laughs> I would say that perhaps I would try to influence the current economic system we have to become a little bit more circular because it's all about linear GDP growth and we're treating the environment and climate as an externality, which doesn't really help much. And maybe as a last one, I would say I would try and test any water policies or environmental policies against the net zero criteria or climate criteria because at the moment I see a huge disconnect in different parts of the world between policies that are there to protect the environment when it comes to river, for example, water quality or groundwater water quality and what is the impact of those improvements into the emissions by building new assets. I think I would do those. very difficult things, yeah? Not one person could do these things, but yeah, these are my initial reactions. <laughs> but that is also opening doors, which I would love to sidetrack you and to, to go deeper into that. So I, I, I stand my points. That's a part one. I'd love to, to go deeper. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mary, you've been an awesome guest, and I always like to have awesome guests on that microphone. So last question, would you have someone to recommend me that I should definitely invite to follow you? Oh, I I couldn't single out one single person. I can immediately think like 10, 20, 30, 40 people that are amazing people from asset owners or partners, consultants, contractors that, you know, I really feel that you need to speak to as many people as possible. I can give you a list separately if you want and you can invite some very inspiring people I've been working with. Maybe if you were to be brave enough, if you were to have one single person, it would be maybe a prime minister or top political leader to really test their understanding of these things in a practical level? <laughs> I know, I avoided your question. I'll try it. <laughs> but yeah, more than happy to give you actually a list of many people that are amazing and have been very fortunate to work with in the industry over the years. If people want to follow up with you after that very meaningful conversation, where shall I redirect them the best? Well, they can, first of all, they, you can find me on our on our website as well, but uh, you can always find me on LinkedIn, Maria Manidaki. I'm there. You can drop me a line, maria.manidaki at motmac.com. And yeah, more than happy to get... Um, contacted and uh, have a chat of course <laughs> i'll put all the links in the show notes absolutely because i was personally surprised to see that mott mcdonald has a website called mott mac like you're the cool the cool chap you know <laughs> even the name is, is short <laughs> so 
of course. Which sounds kind of really, really, really cool. Yeah, something I, I didn't ask in between. The, the past 2080 is something we can find online as well? Yeah, actually, it's a very good point you mentioned. So the past 2080 will go out for public consultation at the end of this month. So anyone in any part of the world will have the opportunity to provide feedback. And uh, we're aiming to publish in the autumn in this year, together with a more practical guidance document where it has good stories from different parts of the industry. Yeah. So it's not a UK thing. It's, you know, it can be accessed and used by other people. Yeah. Okay, then I'll, I'll follow that one. And as soon as it's out, I'll, I'll have a very interested read <laughs> on my desk. Oh, God. Yeah, um, great. <laughs> Mary, it's been a pleasure. I think we'll meet physically very soon in, in Madrid Absolutely. for the Global Water Summit. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks a lot for sharing all those insights. No, that's great. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.